right, I'm here with Caitlin, Liz, and Alan, and Mutant Rage Monsters. But first, we've got Caitlin with people hacking Verizon. Kind of. <laughs> um, so a hacker, well, according to The Verge and Umar Shakir, uh, and this is the article right here on, on your screen, it should be on your screen, uh, a hacker apparently got an employee database and tried to ransom the data for $250,000. Now, that's not the main point of this story. The main point of the story is that apparently the database was public and it only contained like uh, legitimate anonymous details, sort of like employee contact information, like their phone numbers, you know, if you want to contact the employee or, um, you know, and their names. And so this ransomware person or ransomer, you know, got this public database, contacted the company, demanded $250,000 for publicly available data. I thought that was, that was chef's kiss. Yeah. I remember there was a big one where they claimed they had got voter records and it was publicly available voter records. Yep. Uh, so let me, um, let me quote the article here because this is, this is great. Quote, unquote, these employees are idiots. Unquote. The hacker uh, uh, told Motherboard via chat, the hacker is seeking $250,000 in exchange for not leaking the database and said they are in contact with Verizon. And then a Verizon spokesperson contacted Motherboard confirming the incident, saying a fraudster, quote, a fraudster recently contacted us, threatening us to release visibly available employee directory information in exchange for payment from Verizon. We do not believe the fraudster has any sensitive information and we do not plan to engage the individual further yeah oh my goodness oh this my reminds goodness. me of all the people that keep sending me vulnerability reports on my deliberately vulnerable test machines and yeah, exactly. complaining that i don't like fix them and stuff exactly thank you yeah yeah well i you know i i know what it is to be a noob clueless hacker i but you know <laughs> demanding money is not a good move it's never a good move yeah. I mean, I, I, why would you, like, if, let's say you are a good hacker. Like, why would you ruin your employment chances by doing crime that pays off? Like, sure, you could make $250,000 off one thing, maybe if you're lucky. Um, and then you might go drive for a year or, you know, you could just get a steady income. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I've seen this where people are not only crooks, but they're incompetent crooks. Anyway. Right, so I've got uh, Felina. There is a Microsoft Office zero day, more or less. It was discovered in April in two documents in the wild, and people analyzed it, and they found this uh, Base64 encoded PowerShell stuff, which you can embed in a Microsoft Office document, and you can then have arbitrary code execution in fully patched Windows with fully patched Office. Windows Defender does not pick it up, even, and especially if you convert it to an RTF, then you can trigger it when they don't even open the file. They just view it in preview mode in File Explorer. So it's pretty awesome. And apparently um, it was found in April in two samples. And the person that found it told Microsoft that they could not reproduce it. So they just dumped it publicly May 27th and everybody's been able to reproduce it and made examples and videos and everything. So everybody's good and excited about that. And Microsoft did put out a workaround today. You can just turn off one of the features in Office that enables this. Uh, with a registry hack. So anyway, it, it appears to be real and uh, everybody should be aware. This reminds me of Bubble Boy, though. I think the first uh, 
20 years ago, the first person who managed to put malware in an RTF file, which were previously considered safe. Anyway, uh, beware of Microsoft Office attacks. And uh, Liz has got drinking water. Yeah, this is a pretty cool story uh, that came out um, in terms of uh, technology, but not cybersecurity, um, uh, from uh, SciTech Daily about a very low-cost gel that can uh, harvest uh, drinking water from the air. Pretty uh, pretty cool. So uh, essentially, it's a blend of like konjac gum and uh, cellulose and uh, it, it attracts water from the air and and the cool cool thing about this is that uh, uh, just a single uh, kilogram can produce more than six liters of water per day and uh, a kilogram only costs two bucks so um, that's that's pretty cool I am so skeptical of this. <laughs> Very, know. very skeptical. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm possibly less skeptical because I am familiar with with konjac. It's it's an interesting um, substance that uh, I know it. Usually they make uh, noodles out of it. Uh, low uh, low uh, carbohydrate low calorie noodles out of it. But it uh, really is adept at. Uh, uh, pulling water out of the atmosphere. Now, what was interesting about this uh, was that it said that those, those numbers that I quoted earlier were from uh, 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 areas that were less than 15% uh, relative humidity. Now, even more impressive is that same kilogram, uh, as stated in this article, can pull 3.4 gallons in areas with up to 30% relative humidity. 3.4 gallons of water out of the atmosphere. There's not that much water in my entire like apartment building atmosphere. I mean, come on. <laughs> well, uh, it's, in, uh, it's in an outlet called Science Tech Daily, so it must be accurate. Well, well clearly, clearly what we need is someone to demonstrate this. Get the stuff and let's test it. Yeah, this is one of those things where it's you, you gotta you gotta show us. <laughs> okay. Like, you know, there there is water in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, of course it's very spread out. And you know, you, you would if you're having a, a substance try to pull water out of the atmosphere like that, you have to have the all the atmosphere go through the object, you know, and then have it be like sort of perfectly extracted. But there, like I said, there's so little water content in the atmosphere, especially here on the, um, um, especially here on on the ground. Um, like when you, there's a heavy rainstorm, think about what's going on. You have these rain clouds that are, you know, several, you know, they, they're the size of states or sometimes even countries, and they're several, you know, <laughs> miles high, you know, and they're. Uh, it's so dense, full of water that it's, you know, of course, looks like clouds. It's essentially high up fog. Um, and then, yeah, okay, yeah. Then, then you get a, a decent amount of rain coming down. Um, but if you're just talking about like a a, a small area, like a, a room, like there's just not that much water. Oh, so the cool thing about this is it's made into a film, so it can cover a great deal of surface area. Now, it does need to be heated to be activated. Um, 
But uh, I mean, that's pre pretty compelling research out of uh, University of uh, Texas and um, a, a former UT researcher who's now at MIT. So there you go, Nanto Philip. I I am highly skeptical. Well, well Caitlin, <laughs> if you're going to have that kind of bad attitude, I, I hesitate to even mention the upcoming technology of sucking all the CO2 out of the air to clean up the planet. You're probably going to think that's unreasonable too. I I, I just might. <laughs> well, that's a good that's a good attitude to have, but it is it is uh, it is interesting nonetheless. I yeah. mean, I, I think I think it's a great idea and something to explore. Um, but anyone who says they're getting a ton of water out of like, like a, you know, a room um, that just doesn't have a ton of water. <laughs> well, no, the, yeah, I think it only works outside. Yeah, or even outside, even outside, like even like even if you have a big like dome outside, like a greenhouse and you fill it all up with like water extractors, uh, trying to get a gallon of water out of that, even that huge setup. I mean, there's not even a gallon of water within like a big greenhouse atmosphere. Mm. So I don't know how they're expecting to get gallons of water out <laughs> like you have to try it and see i i know i'm I, i'm not i don't have enough faith you don't seem to have enough faith however alan has omnipotent B bmc's whatever those are <laughs> <laughs> yes pants down bmc's which yeah. is one of the more nsfw um uh names for a very serious vulnerability that actually dates back to 2019 that affects BMCs or baseboard management controllers, which most people wouldn't know in their daily lives, except these are the out of band controllers for servers. Oftentimes the very professional grade servers used in data centers and such that allow uh, administrators to do a number of things such as restart machines or um, update the BIOS or log events. And this can all be done on uh, the management plane. This is totally out of band. This is not um, the way you would administer the software running on the machine. Instead, this is really the BMC is operating at a much lower level of the hardware. And so obviously this is an enormous or potentially enormous security vulnerability, which is exactly what was discovered in 2019 with the pants down exploit. And um, most manufacturers very quickly patched this vulnerability back in 2019. But according to cybersecurity firm Eclipsium, Quanta, which is a very sizable manufacturer of mostly white box machines, still has not gotten around to patching this in their BMC units in mostly their machines. I don't know what market share quanta machines have because again, they're, they're a white box manufacturer. So other companies will buy their stuff and rebrand it as their own. Um, but it is a company with over $10 billion in sales annually. Uh, so, and they have manufactured for companies ranging from uh, Apple to BlackBerry to Valve in the past. So it stands to reason that a number of sizable server, so-called server manufacturers also uh, get their stuff from uh, Quanta. So this, this will impact a number of machines. It just remains to be seen what machines, where, and who is running them. Um, but uh, it's, if you are, say, using a very, very cheap VPS, um, you may want to investigate whether or not your server is vulnerable to this. 
but if they took over that device, they couldn't get your data, right? All they could do is turn it off. It's really a DOS attack, right? Well, they could conceivably do a number of things. I don't know um, how well developed the OX, uh, exploits were, yeah. but they could potentially take over the whole machine. They could, they could get, if that is, I think it's limited it to if the user has root access on the operating system oh. that's installed on the machine, then they could get up to any number of nefarious things. And the, the BMC does really sit in a very privileged position. Um, it can, it sits between like um, uh, USB and uh, PCIe and um, uh, CPU and all that. So you could, you could conceivably do quite a number of things, but I don't know just how far that's been pushed or exploited, certainly in the wild. Okay. All right. And if I can get this to go up, there we are. So Caitlin has robots. I do have robots, and thankfully, um, these robots are, are helping and not destroying humanity, as, as one usually predicts. So uh, there's an article by The Insider. Let me pull it up here. Uh, the Insider uh, has an article by uh, Uruba Jamal uh, talking about how New York State is giving companion robots to 800 senior citizens. Now, I'm not entirely sure how these companion robots work. But the idea is that they're sort of like high-tech Furbies uh, for seniors in which they can add companionship to lonely seniors who don't get out much. And I'm, like I said, I'm not entirely sure how well this works because, and once again, I'm just highly skeptical. I don't think that robots can provide the human contact necessary to fully combat loneliness. Uh, but I am like, I, but I am glad that they are engaging in this and looking at it as a way to combat this because this is a big issue. Uh, so, like Liz's story about the water, like I'm very skeptical about them extracting a bunch of water from the atmosphere, but I think it's it's useful, especially in places where there's drought. Here again, I'm highly skeptical about how well this works, but I am glad that they are funding this and that they are providing this as a free service to seniors uh, to try out. Uh, so the, the article mentions that older adults face high risk of loneliness, um, especially when the pandemic hit and it got really bad. Um, so, and, and more than a third of Americans uh, reported you know, serious loneliness in an October 2020 uh, survey. Um, so, yeah, robot orders in general are up 40% since, you know, the pandemic started. A lot of this has to do with companion robots. Uh, a lot of this has to do with ro robots replacing workers, which is also a great thing. I, I highly endorse that. I think that's fantastic. Uh, but it's, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how well this works. That's basically all I'm saying. Uh, and then, oh yeah, the... Robots themselves come from uh, an Israeli uh, firm called LEQ. Um, uh, yeah, uh, made by the Israeli firm. Oh, yeah, sorry. The robots are known by the name LEQ and are made by the Israeli firm uh, Intuition Robotics. And like I said, they just use AI to sort of sim stimu simulate conversation. So. Well, you know, I don't suppose it'll be as healthy as getting real social contact by like watching Tucker Carson and joining QAnon. But yeah, clearly, 
you know, that, that is one of the reasons we might have such a polarized uh, political situation in America is not because of, or not, or not just because of things like Tucker Carlson and, you know, racism on, you know, cable news, but a lot of people could very much just be lonely and things like QAnon and Fox News conspiracy nonsense or Newsmax conspiracy nonsense can make people feel a little less lonely. Oh, yeah. You know, a little more engaged in the world. So, yeah, joining a militia, you know, there's lots of ways to get social contact. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> it's, um, you know, wide world out there, lots of opportun- opportunities. <laughs> there are. All right. So, I, I've been uh, seeing interesting articles about China. Uh, Biden recently said he had a conversation with Xi Jinping. He's apparently had more conversations with him than any other American president. And Xi Jinping told him, democracy is dying. You guys cannot adapt to this rapidly changing world. As anyone can see, all you do is split into factions and argue and never make any decisions. What you really need is a strong leader like me who can keep up with the rapidly changing pace of things. And there does seem to be some justice in that. And one thing I've seen over the last several years, which is quite undeniable is the Chinese people are very happy with their government. In fact, let me try sharing this if I can find the right one to share. Um, I'm not succeeding. Um, There. All right. So here is a graph. I saw a version of this a few years ago and showed it to my students. I was very interested. This is the China GDP, and it rises to $15 trillion dollars. And here's the United States GDP, which rises to about the same thing, 15 or $20 trillion by 2020. And it starts at 1961. And you can see the USA has just had a smooth rise for 50 years, from 1970 at a steady rate. But China has risen to the same total all within 15 years. They really didn't start rising until 2005. So if you look at the growth rate, the China growth rate has been 10 or 8% for the last couple of decades, which is incredible. The United States growth rate has been more like 2% for all that period and more steady. And so I, when I saw this the first time, I said, this must have an enormous psychological effect on people. An enormously fast growth rate is going to convince people that our government is on the right track. They're taking care of the people. My kids are doing better than I did. I'm doing better than my parents did. Everything is right. And that's right. They have very high morale in China. They're very pleased with their government. But the problem is... Um, The other thing is there's going to be a limit to how high you can grow, especially at that insane rate. And now they've hit it because of COVID, it's come down and they are understandably really freaking out. And that's the consequence of this. They're going to expect that growth rate to continue and it can't possibly continue. So they're going to blame their leaders when it stops growing. And now um, the economist had a couple of good articles about this. The um, Xi Jinping This is the problem with the authoritarian leader. The authoritarian leader accomplishes that one person's goals, but there's something that one person does not care about, and that gets no attention because you don't have a democracy where people can complain and get their concerns addressed. So what Xi Jinping refuses to do for some kind of ideological reason is import RNA vaccines that work. He is determined to use China's Sinovac vaccine, which does not work. So they have these monstrous lockdowns that just go on and on. Even their elderly people are not vaccinated with anything that's any good. So they lock people up for months and totally screw up their economy and screw up the supply chain. And that people are getting very upset about that. And, uh, it 
it's that's the problem with authoritarian systems because everybody has a blind spot. And if you don't have more than one voice at the top, then you never fix the thing that your one leader refuses to care about. So anyway, uh, we'll see which one of us becomes the prominent system in the coming times. In this, For a little while, China has been doing better than the U.S., but I'm skeptical it'll continue to do better. However, if the U.S. continues uh, fighting among ourselves and sort of destroying ourselves from the inside, then China may become more dominant. Anyway, um, then we on to Liz has got the enzyme that eats plastic. Yeah, Caitlin, if you didn't like my last story, you're really not going to like this one. It's about an enzyme that uh, devours uh, pet plastic uh, from from the uh, the uh, uh, an outlet entitled Chemistry World uh, from the published by the Royal Society of Chemistry in Britain. Uh, it is about a uh, plastic degrading enzyme that was developed through uh, the use or developed and uh, iterated upon through the use of artificial intelligence. So pretty interesting stuff. Um, uh, according to the article, it was research that started around um, six years ago or a little before where um, uh, scientists had discovered a bacteria that could degrade uh, plastic and uh, thought, you know, maybe we can do something with this. So um, they worked with it and um, the uh, artificial intelligence came in when uh, they made use of a neural network to uh, figure out how to modify the protein scaffold that they were using for this. So um, pretty interesting. I mean, um, supposedly this, uh, this uh, enzyme can uh, really devour plastic. It ate uh, a, a plastic cake tray within 48 hours. So they do if they can make this functional uh, functional for use, uh, it would be pretty uh, pretty legendary, pretty game changing. Yeah, I saw that movie. It's the Andromeda Strain. <laughs> but yeah. I I'm interested in, you know, and we don't see too much of it uh, yet, uh, see a little bit of it here in California, but uh, corn uh, plastics that are made from corn derivatives and uh, stuff like that, it'd be, it's, it'd be interesting to see if, uh, you know, why, why those aren't as common. No, it's a good idea so, to get rid of the plastic. Plastic pollution is not a small problem. So actually, I was going to say, Liz, no, enzymes that break down plastic make a lot of sense. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and also, I wanted I want to do a correction. Um, so I actually did look up how much water there is in in the atmosphere, mm -hmm. in one's house, and it turns out that yeah, Liz, I think you I think you're you're more spot on than I I I gave you credit for. Um, so like a average humidifier apparently can extract uh, on a really good day. Apparently, it can extract gallons of water from yeah. your house. Yeah. So I yeah I was under the wrong impression about the amount of water that could really be extracted and you can extract a lot. Um, now there is a problem that when you extract water from the atmosphere, the atmosphere also contains a lot of viruses and airborne particles. And you only need to, if you want to use it for anything, you need to purify it. But no, I mean, now that I'm looking at the numbers, I think your article might actually be right, Liz. <laughs> and, and I question the second part of there because the stuff you produce would be about as good as rainwater, right? And rainwater is yeah, not, well, not necessarily, but it'd be easy enough to purify with the UV filter i would uh, imagine 
Yeah. Well, you're, you're going to create a lot of those <laughs> in your house if you use a UV light. But um, if you, yeah, no, no. I mean, I'm sorry. I've, I've, I'm correcting myself. I was wrong. No, that's, wow. that's I'm, I was too skeptical. <laughs> right. That's a healthy attitude to have. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but anyway, as for, as for plastics, so different plastics, of course, have different purposes. So uh, the types of plastics most people are, are very familiar with are like PETs. Um, and those are food grade plastics. Uh, they do not uh, contaminate your food with anything that, that's poisonous. So you get things like Pepsi in it um, and they are like virtually unbreakable. Um, you know, you can throw them on the ground. They're fantastic. They're amazing. A lot of people, don't, I mean, it's, plastic has a lot of problems, but it's also really awesome. <laughs> I mean, yeah, let's, let's give, yeah, let's give plastic some credit. I mean, the, oh, yeah. it is really awesome. Yeah. And then you have things like, um, so yeah, PET is in, um, in, uh, used for soda bottles. And then there's ABS, which is a very popular oil-based plastic that's very strong. And that's used a lot in things like computer cases or plastic toys, things you wouldn't want to put, you know, your food next to because it's yes. made with oil, uh, but it's very strong, very yeah. sturdy. You can, once again, just throw it off a building. It's going to survive. It's yeah. And and that interesting note about that, the study focused on PET, the enzyme did not do so well with the more crystalline plastics like ABS. So they, they still got to come up with something that's going to be a specific strain that will eat that stuff. Right. Um, and then as to the corn-based stuff, so that would be things like... Um, like uh, drinking straws uh, it, it, made out of that or food containers. Yeah. No, uh, what's it called? Um, uh, acid, uh, there's PET... Acetate? No, uh, there's, let's see, ABS, PET, and PETG. Um, and then there's a oh, PLA, PLA. PLA plastic is the one you're talking yeah. about with the made from corn. Um, that is fantastic uh, if you don't mind brittle, easily breakable plastic. No. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the problem. Uh, it, I, I, I'm a big fan of, of PLA. Uh, it, it is very easy to work with. It technically biodegrades, technically <laughs> biodegrades. I've, I've never actually seen that happen, but it, it's also very brittle and it's not really suited for things like containing drinks. It'll break. Um, I don't know. I've, I've actually, it may not be PLA, but I have had drinks out of corn uh, based beverage containers. In fact, that's the application other than PLA I've seen it in the most is in food containers and drinking straws. Right. I mean, we're, but we're talking about long-term containers um, and they have to be, like I said, very rigid uh, or not rigid. No. Um, so PLA is rigid and that's why it breaks, um, but it has to be able to withstand a lot of abuse. And that's what, that's where PLA kind of doesn't do so well. Um, but it is, like I said, it has a lot of a lot of uses, but yeah, that's why people use different plastics for things that the different material properties lend themselves to different um, applications. So, all right. Well, Alan's got long COVID. Well, fortunately, I personally do not have long COVID, but researchers at the Veterans Administration and Washington University have looked at the patient records of over 13 million veterans in the US and have found that people infected with COVID, even if previously vaccinated, 
are at an elevated risk of developing long COVID. And uh, we've talked about <clears throat> long COVID and risk factors a number of times on this podcast. And even defining long COVID, what it is, and what qualifies one as being a sufferer of long COVID has not yet been uh, nailed down really. But according to this study in which the authors define long COVID as suffering from either uh, shortness of breath or brain fog or exhaustion or several other factors, they were able to determine that uh, not only people who have gone unvaccinated but also people who were vaccinated still are at a considerably elevated risk of developing long COVID and of course also developing others very serious life-threatening conditions like uh, heart attacks, strokes, and uh, increased uh, rate of death post-infection. Now, um, one of the drawbacks to the study is that it was conducted during uh, 2021, January through December of 2021. And so that was a, a period in which uh, most people had only two doses of vaccine. And it was also before Omicron hit, at least for the most part. And so it's unclear whether a third dose of a vaccine makes a big difference and whether Omicron is more or less likely uh, to give people long COVID. So some major caveats there, but this is probably one of the best data sources available to resources uh, researchers, this VA patient database, because um, it's based on who's going to the hospital or going to a, a checkup. And it's not self-reported, which is an issue with some of the other surveys that have been conducted. Also another issue with it, however, is that it's not exactly a representative sample of the US or certainly global population as a whole because it skews male and it skews older and also skews white. So I guess it would also only include people who went to the hospital, right? Or got checkups okay. through the VA system, veterans mm -hmm. who received checkups. Yeah, uh, But it's still one of the best or the best data uh, sets available because it's very extensive and it's easier for researchers to, uh, to, to comb through to find this information. It's also easy for researchers to compare um, uh, patient outcomes during the pandemic and prior to the pandemic, too. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of good data come out of Israel, too, which seems to have a powerful uh, health system and a lot of data. Yes, and they seem to have been taking COVID much more seriously than uh, many other countries, such as the US. And of course, Israel was the first country to administer a third dose of vaccines. Yeah. Followed by a fourth dose for many people. Yep. So they really have been leading the way in terms of uh, appropriate mitigation and uh, treatment. Yeah. All right. And Caitlin has our headline story with mutant rage monsters. I do. I love mutant rage monsters. <laughs> uh, so the metro.co.uk has an article by Jeff Parsons talking about a gene editing experiment that went horribly wrong and turned the fluffy little hamsters into, and I quote, aggressive mutant rage monsters, which is fantastic. So what happened? <laughs> what went wrong? What went so wrong? They, some scientists were using a CRISPR technology uh, to go after a hormone called uh, vas vasopressin and its receptor 
AVR, AVPR1A, as one does. And <laughs> so the idea was that they were going to get rid of this, uh, um, this uh, hormone and this receptor. And it, the idea was that because these hormones sort of inhibit uh, or uh, antisocial behavior, um, it would, getting rid of them would make the hamsters nicer and more lovely. But the exact opposite happened, um, as, as is always the case with these gene editing experiments. So these augment hamsters started just going wild and attacking all the same sex um, species that they were contained with. Uh, and uh, they say, quote unquote, we were really surprised by the results. No kidding, says Professor H. Uh, Elliot uh, Albers, who led the research. Um, and they said, uh, we anticipated that if we eliminated uh, uh, vasopressin activity, we would, we would reduce both aggression and social communication. But the opposite happened. So clearly, we now have a technology that we can use to create super aggressive soldiers on the battlefield. That's the first thing I was thinking. Yes. <laughs> so, the beginning of the Borg. Uh, and, oh, no. Actually, no. So in, in let's get really geeky here. So in Star Trek... There is a, there's like this whole history of Earth that happened to lead up to people going into space. And in the 21st century, in Star Trek lore, the United States descends into civil war. Um, and then there's like World War III. Um, and then there's uh, these gene editing experiments. And that's where like Star Trek II comes from, like Khan. Khan was from the 21st century. Um, and who was gene edited to be like a super soldier just like this yeah. oh, and also there were the berserkers in the past which were essentially what you get here yeah exactly so um yeah we're well on our way to world war three and, and augmented uh warriors uh causing and and leading to bans on genetic modifications in humans so yeah glorious, star trek pretty much called it a glorious future glorious future yes or right. without Vulcans. <laughs> yeah, not yet. Well, anyway, I got a couple more here. There was a, so Green, Glenn Greenwald went to the All In podcast, was interviewed by David Sachs. And I was very interested because, you know, Glenn Greenwald was originally a hero of the left by publishing the Snowden revelations. Then he formed The Intercept, which was a very far left publication complaining about the government. And then he rage quit his own newspaper, claiming they tried to censor him. And most everybody... Uh, that I knew pretty much wrote him off as nuts. And then he started complaining about left figures on the left and the Democrats and everything until everybody decided he appeared to have nuts and become a Republican. And then he finally explains his position and it, listening to him explain it, it's more interesting than that. And it sounds pretty good. What he said is before Trump got in, all the newspapers were going broke, which they were. They were pretty much giving up, shutting down. They couldn't pay anybody, New York Times and everybody. Then Trump got in. And with the Fox News on the right, they figured out that's the business model. What we have to do is stop trying to appeal to the center and pick an audience and feed them what they want. So they all moved to the left to feed the, the anti-Trump people raging hatred of Trump, which I think is a reasonably fair statement. He said, now there's no more middle journalism. There's just advocacy journalism on one side or the other. And um, he wanted to criticize everybody equally and, and found that there was no home for him anymore, which... I think it's probably true. It's, and this is the problem with America. The only way to make any money is to feed raw meat to one side or the other. 
Anyway, um, there is one other little fact I came across, which I think probably affected me. USB-C cables are not all the same, and there's no way to tell them apart. I had a lot of problems charging up my MacBook, and Chromebook has now told you. I think people tell me this, but anyway, um, Caitlin appears to know the answer. But anyway, I, this reminded me of something I hear now and then. Um, why would they make multiple cables at the same end just to make us all insane so you don't get the right one? And how are you supposed to tell? So, okay. Thank you, Sam. This has been the biggest pain I've, I've seen in computing. So the yeah. idea behind USB-C, I'm just going to rant because you just, you hit my nerves. I, I, I want to hear this because <laughs> I was horrified. I mean, since when do you make them? They're different and the connectors are all the same. Of course, nobody can tell. Right, exactly. And, and the specs are constantly changing to, to make things, make cables even, even more difficult to produce. So the, the idea behind USB-C is we would just have one connector, one cable to rule them all. And yeah. it would be fantastic. And, it, you know, you wouldn't need any, you wouldn't need, you know, like a VGA cable, you wouldn't need HDMI, you wouldn't need uh, like all, all the USB devices to work together, you wouldn't need FireWire, everything would be just one cable, it'd be fantastic. The problem is, is these connectors were made for specific purposes and the cables historically were made to fit those purposes. So for example, if you have a power hungry device, you need very uh, thick cables to handle the, the amperage. If you have a high speed data device, you need cables that are well shielded from interference. Uh, you like twisted pair, that kind of stuff. Um, and the thing is making a cable that is capable of transmitting high amounts of power is well shielded you know, and, you know, well-constructed is super expensive. So what manufacturers ended up doing is they would make like USB-C chargers or, you know, uh, and then just ship cables that are only designed to, you know, handle large amounts of power, or you would make a high-speed device and, you know, to save a little bit of money, the USB cables would be good for transmitting high-speed data, but terrible at transmitting power. And, and as a result, like, like you have no, and they're not labeled as such. You have no idea what cable is going to work well with, with what device. Um, and so my solution is just buy a cable that, you know, you know, is, is US, you buy USB cable, you know, is going to, you know, like work with your device. Like you, you, if like you have a hard drive, like I said, look for a specific like Thunderbolt compatible USB-C cable, get yourself a label printer, <laughs> you know, uh, then label it as such. I mean, I got these portable monitors for um, for national CCDC uh, for my laptop, so I'd have a three monitor set up as one as, as is necessary, <laughs> and uh, and the the monitors connect to your computer via USB C, and they also have an external USB C power connector, and so this one product comes with one, two USB cables. And the two USB cables are completely different. Like, like I said, one of them is for power and, and one is for data and you cannot like interchange them because they're designed for those specific purposes. And we need a way to label our USB-C cables to show exactly what they're capable of when you plug them in. And we do not have that. And as of right now, USB-C has gone from a really great, fantastic idea to a absolute nightmare. <laughs> You know, the fiber optic community solved this decades ago with a rigid color coding scheme. And that is what you need. You need one color for the high power one and one color for the high data one. And but then you would know. And, and But here we go. The specs are changing. So USB originally was designed to handle like so many volts and so many, so much current. 
Um, but of course, more hungry, more power hungry devices have come out, uh, higher speed devices have come out. Um, and so, I mean, that's actually how USB-A works. You know, you have like the blue, you know, although, yeah. although it, these are suggestions. So if manufacturers, you know, think that their product looks better in green, I'm looking at Razer, uh, they'll just use green because <laughs> like, it looks better. <laughs> well, you're always going to have lunatics, but at least most of the time you could obey the color code. Like I said, I, the best thing to do in the time being is to get yourself a label label printer. Hold on one second. I'm going to pull mine out. So this is a electronics label printer. Um, this will actually uh, print uh, onto cables. So if you push like cable wrap, the cable wrap button here, you can print out a label that will go around a cable. You also have cable flags, which you know, our print cable flags. So you can get these um, and then print out um, labels for your, your USB-C cables. Why does it surprise not surprise me that you own one of these? Well, you know, this reminds me of, you could use the really even older solution from coax and have like a serial number printed on the side of the cable that tells you which version it is. I mean, that would be, that would, I mean, that would work really well for consumers too. Like if they just had like, like uh, like P one P two like for power cables, well, you know. Just, if it, if you said like RG fifty eight, you could at least look up what that means, and you'd know whether you had the right cable. Right. I mean, the thing is, they have like Cat one, Cat two, Cat three, Cat four, Cat five, yeah. Cat six, Cat seven. I mean, they could do something like that for USB cables to say like you know P P one for basic power, P two yeah. for you know, and then you could look that up. Uh, then then they could do like d1 for data one d2 for data two you know it's stuff like that they could yeah. they could have a convoluted system like that um but of course that assumes manufacturers aren't going to lie on their cables well, yeah but i mean you know <laughs> it's amazing that they would make a thing where the cables are not the same and not provide any solution this is it, not good it, it is not good like i said the only solution is to get that uh is is to get yourself a label printer. <laughs> well, yeah, but if, you, but if you don't even know what the choices are, apparently the solution is to get a Chromebook. And I hope they'll make an app for more computers so your computer will tell you what kind of cable you just plugged in and you can tell if it's the wrong cable. That would be handy. Yeah, no, I actually have, um, I've collected so many USB cables. I have a USB cable testing device ah. and I can plug it in and I can then look at what data connections there are in these devices. Uh, at a glance, because I one of the other annoying things is that not only USB-C cables are messed up, a lot of times uh, devices will come with USB, you know, like micro USB charging cables. And internally, those charging cables will not have any data wires. And there is nothing marking them as not data. And I've, there have been, I've, so many people, including myself, have spent hours trying to debug why their device isn't showing up on their system because they plugged in a USB C cable or a USB micro USB cable that doesn't have internal data wires. <laughs> so you bought a special device that can test them? Yes. Uh, one second. Um, yeah. I'll go grab it right now. Yeah, that might be something a lot of us need. I think I wasted a lot of money getting more power bricks to charge my Mac because it wouldn't charge and I kept trying changing things. All right, so this is, oops, let me pull it out. This is a USB uh, testing device. 
it's you plug uh, like a USB-C cable here, uh, USB, if it's like has an A side, you'd put it on this side, micro USB on this side. Um, and these will light up based on like, one of these is ground, one of these is power, and then you have DB plus and D minus. Uh, so if you have one that does not support data, you know, the power will light on and ground will light on, et cetera. So you can use this, you can use these to test your USB cables. Um, sometimes just USB cables fail and you'll have like one light on. So it's a nice way to see what your USB cable is uh, capable of. This does not do full USB-C or USB-3, you know, compatibility testing. Uh, usually in my experience, if you buy a cable that's obviously like USB-C uh, or USB-3, um, it's going to be able to handle like USB-3 data. <laughs> like I've never run <laughs> into that situation before, but these do exist. Uh, and once again, get out your label printer <laughs> and then just label the your USB cables that only do power as power only. Caitlin, where did you get that? Uh, I think I got this one off Amazon or AliExpress, one of the two. I mean, it's totally a cheap Chinese you know, device. Um, I don't know if you can see that. Oh, wow. Printed yeah, instructions it's... on the backside. Yeah, yeah, there are instructions on the back. They're all in complete Chinese. Well, so this is high quality Google stuff translate. right here. Google Translate for that. Yeah. I'd, luckily, it's, it's so simple, though. You, you plug in the power on this side. And then, you, like I said, you just put in one end to another end. And it, it will just light these up. And you'll be able to see whether or not your basic USB cable is, you know, actually does something. Good. Well, that's good to know. All right. That's my rant. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I was <laughs> horrified. All right. And the last one is uh, Liz is going to forge driving licenses. Oh, I, I like how, I like how you put that. It's always Liz is going to Liz is going to do the hacking. Liz is well, it's better to use the active voice. The passive voice is considered a poor style. Yeah. I'll have yeah, you. Yeah, that's that's boy. That is that is uh diplomatic way to put it uh <laughs> so uh I, this is a pretty great article in the register um uh entitled australian digital driving licenses can be defaced in minutes because they can so this uh, uh essentially uh australia decided you know uh, maybe these plastic uh, driver's licenses everyone's carrying around aren't so secure. You know how we can fix this? Let's have a digital driving license app, including things like QR codes that are totally hackable. Uh, a uh, Dutch researcher, I believe, uh, figured out that... Uh, I figured out that this uh, app is just wildly vulnerable. Not not even a challenge to uh, to get in there and do do some pretty crazy stuff. So uh, <laughs> I, I really liked this. Uh, I like I really liked the the initial lead in uh, description of uh, how difficult it was to <laughs> break this app. So first uh, first and most important for efforts at cracking the app. It only uses a four digit pin to unlock. And that code is also the decryption key for the license, which is stored in a JSON file. 
So what could go wrong? Apparently lots. So this app also never actually validates the uh, app. That, or it never actually validates the license that's stored with the government. So it doesn't refresh any data. You could have just like mowed down uh, 12 school children last week. And, you know, maybe it's not going to show up on your license when you're out driving around. So, um, and, and it just goes on, on downhill from there. It's just, as you would expect, a complete horror show. So it's, uh, it's always interesting to uh, kind of read about the way that the, the government is going to roll these these new panaceas out and it's it's going to fix everything and it never seems to work another fun thing about it i saw privacy advocates talk about they say let me get this straight a cop pulls you over you unlock your phone and you hand your phone to the cop this is what you consider to be safe yeah yeah also you know what could go wrong there you know, I'm sure that I'm sure that cops just going to uh, only look at the uh, license that you have pulled up on the screen. I know. I mean, normally you need to get a search warrant to search through your phone. But if you just hand your phone to the cop. Just ignore all those evidence photos in the camera roll. OK, let's we're, that's not what we're talking about today. And the text messages about this drug deal I'm driving to and all that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> What's really interesting is that I took a look at that COVID uh, app that wow. they were pushing out, and the technology was was very interesting. And the data, once again, was just stored like sort of in a JSON file. Yeah, but it was at least signed uh, by you know a private key. Uh -huh. uh, so if you did try to forge it, it would detect it. You know, so you could change the data, but it'd be like, hey, this is doesn't go. This is not properly signed, you know, and so I'm surprised that they would put out a driver's license that wouldn't use the same technology because it's not that hard to implement, you know, a private, you know, key system that would um, make it so that a, a government entity could publicly sign, you know, your driver's license and make yep. it official, but whatever. What do I know? <laughs> you know, the Australian government claims this is not a problem, uh, you know, the... The, the cops are going to scan the license and if it, if they they scan it it'll it, it'll be uh you know clear that that they the person screwed with the ID and they're using a fake ID or whatever but not bouncers and bars what a great way to get in when you're underage because this thing is totally vulnerable to being like you know my name is Neil and I'm 36 years old when you're you're really 17 and want to uh, get drunk or something. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the way the COVID, uh, the, the COVID app worked is that you would show people the QR code. Mm -hmm. And because the, the license was uh, digitally signed, um, if the app that, that read the COVID data uh, saw an improper signage, um, it would then blink red, say it's fake. Um, so even, even if you were to make the app show a legitimate looking, you know, COVID uh, vaccination record, um, it still wouldn't get you into any place. So it had some kind of like built-in authenticity checker thing, essentially. Yeah. So the bouncer, in this case, the, the, you know, doctors or whatever that were checking your, your COVID registration, your COVID vaccination records, uh, they would not rely on your phone to tell the truth. They would, yeah. like I said, scan the QR code 
QR code contains a JSON file, essentially, uh, that would that is you know digitally signed um, by the government using a private key that only the government has and would never ever leak into a private citizen's hands, which would be the death knell of, of this technology. But still, in, in principle, it could work. Well, I think the government's defense was it's pretty easy to forge the plastic card, too. And this is about as secure as that. They might be right about that. I, you know, I would argue, yeah, if you, they if they sign it, they use proper cryptographic uh, techniques and, you know, make it. Oh, yeah. And, make- and have it so it can be up, updated. Uh, so if there is a leak of the private key, they can update everyone's license online. And within a month, say this, you know, key is invalid. Um then that would be, I think, in my opinion, better than a traditional driver's license, which has a lot of obscure holograms and stuff to try to make it look less forged, but you can get around that kind of. Uh, The magnetic strip on the back just contains your name and address in plain text. I mean, it's not, there's nothing cryptographically secure about a traditional driver's license. Yeah. Uh, that can't be forged if you are skilled enough, which funnily enough was actually my, probably my first introduction to real world hacking was making fake driver's licenses for my friends in high school. Well, there you go. Yeah. That's how I started my life of crime. And now you go admitting your crimes on the internet. You know, yeah. a very wise man told me, you know, don't, don't admit, go publishing your crimes on the internet. Caitlin. Well, the thing is I was underage at the time. So they don't really count it. I suppose the statute of limitations has expired by now. Yeah, and I and I will honestly say that that was probably the most illegal thing I've ever done in my entire life. You know, it was, it was a fun challenge. You know, when I was a kid, it was real easy to tamper licenses and alter. You could just alter your um, date of birth right on the ID because all they were were these plastic laminated pieces of uh just a a piece of cardboard laminated between two pieces of plastic and you could essentially heat up the plastic and peel it open to access the uh cardboard license inside and Mm -hmm. then very carefully modify the uh birth date uh, so that you could get in to see shows in venues when you were underage. Not that I would know anything about that, but of course, uh, not. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly, that was a thing you could do. And interestingly enough, when I after my grandmother died, I was cleaning out her house and I saw a driver's license that she had from the 1930s. And it was hilarious because all it was was like a cardboard uh, a piece of cardboard with no picture no identifying information nothing like that just saying like oh elizabeth can drive the it, it has passed her driving test and has driver's license number three four five six seven just and like that our was COVID, it. just like our covid cards yeah yeah it, it was it was just like that so you know i guess i guess we've come a long way with our and, and uh you know now now we're getting real ids i i'm told that i'd better get my real id uh sooner rather than later so yeah i think i heard about that too at one time yeah well i mean in defense of the covid cards they are based on vaccination records they usually give out to children <laughs> which no one has forged before no one and when they when they 
talked when they started doing the COVID vaccination stuff, no one thought anyone would seriously try to fake their COVID vaccinations. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> why would think, you do that? I don't think anybody foresaw the incredible vaccine resistance that appeared in America. Yeah. Sort yeah. of like the handgun thing. That seems to be a peculiar American madness. Although other nations have it too. I guess there's a bunch of Canadians refusing to get vaccinated too and such. Right. And and not just refusing to get vaccinated, uh, refusing to get vaccinated, then forging your vaccination. Well, I, I think that, that's the natural outgrowth. As you have like vaccine restrictions, that will be the consequence. I, I suppose. Yeah. But, you know, no one was thinking that was a serious thing that they would have to worry about. But no, moving I forward. About, I was worried about how do we get the vaccine and how fast can I get it? It didn't yeah. occur to me a bunch of people would not want to take it. But I know. No. Why would so? OK. Anyway. I've, I've, I mean, I shouldn't laugh about it because I've, I've lost, you know, neighbors and stuff who decided they weren't going to get vaccinated, got COVID, and now are yeah. no longer with us. But yeah, I, I mean, had close it, friends that refused to take it, but they eventually changed their mind and did take it before good. they got COVID. So they were lucky. Good. Yeah. No. So it's, I mean, it was, it was tragic. But, yeah. and of course, in the certain parts of the country, they were just absolutely ravaged by COVID. In fact, you know, here, like almost no one, you know, got COVID um, because, you know, everyone got vaccinated. They did the, you know, six feet distance at all time thing. We took it very seriously. But there are some places in the United States where getting COVID was like getting the flu or, the, you know, the cold. And like, just everyone got it like, oh, I got COVID again. You know, it's like, what oh, the yeah. and, and all the people in the hospital denying they have COVID because it's a hoax. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There were, there were that. There, were, there was that, too. That was bad. And, oh, gosh. Like oh. I said, like I said, I, I I have sympathy. I know I know the vaccine records and cardboard seems in retrospect like a bad idea, but at the time, like yeah. why why would you authenticate vaccination records? That's silly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you, we we don't we'd never historically have done that. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this one, and we'll be back on Friday. <laughs>